0: Michael Francis was a very successful member of the mob. For nearly 20 years, he was a soldier and then capo of the mafia Colombo crime family of New York. And he joins us on this episode to talk about the rules of organized crime, how it governs itself and how a criminal survives and thrives in the underworld. Giovanni Falcone and Thomas Buschetta met in a prison cell, and at first, neither man spoke a word. It was perhaps the most important meeting in the history of the Italian Mafia. Giovanni Falcone was a giant among the legions of good, decent people who fought against organized crime. He was the best of the best. He was the most successful prosecutor in the history of modern-day Italian mob. And on the other side of the table in this prison cell was Thomas Pachetta, who was a traditional godfather of a particular clan of the Sicilian mafia. Now, there was a war going on, and his clan had been decimated. His brother, his son, and many others of his friends and family had been killed. He had just flown back from Brazil where he had been hiding, and he met Falcone in a prison cell. But they both started in the same place. They both mean children on the streets of Palermo and they understood each other and they understood the rules of the culture. Thus, there was complete silence between the two men for a long time. They looked at each other for 20 minutes and then Giovanni Falcone pulled out a packet of cigarettes and pushed them across the table towards Bichetta. The mafia godfather said nothing. And then slowly, he reached out and pulled up a cigarette. And in that one gesture, Breschetta showed that he would cross the line, that he would turn informant. And he was the highest ranking member of the mafia to ever work with law enforcement. And his testimony would bring about those great maxi trials where hundreds of mafiosi were put on trial and then convicted. And it brought about a virtual civil war between the Italian state and the mafia. And it all began with one simple gesture because Giovanni Falcone understood the code. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to Crimeways. I'm Declan Hill, the host. And as regular listeners know, this podcast is done out of the Henry C. Lee College of Criminology and Forensic Science here at the University of New Haven. And this episode is a recording of one of my classes from last week. The course is entitled The Code, Blood, Honor, and the Rules of the Mafia. And what I say to my students is that you cannot fight organized crime until you know how mobsters think, how they govern themselves, and how their rules work. Today we have a special guest, Michael Francis, the former mafia capo of the Colombo crime family, who, like Thomas Bouchetta, left the mob. But unlike Bouchetta, he never turned against it. And he'll explain in this episode how the mafia works, the rules, police and political corruption at a very high level. Michael, thank you so much for coming back to my class. It's such an honor uh, and such an education for people to hear your story. I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind starting with just explaining a little bit about who you are, your background, and how you became involved with the mob and the Colombo crime family.
1: Well, I was born and raised in in Brooklyn, New York, and my dad was the underboss of the Colombo family, one of the five New York La Cosa Nostra Mafia families, and a very powerful position. And my dad was extremely high profile. He was kind of like the John Gotti of his day, as far as media attention, law enforcement investigations, constantly under investigation, surveillance. He was indicted uh, three times in the state of New York for some very serious crimes when I was a kid growing up. Uh, You know, twice for grand larceny, once for murder. He was acquitted in all three cases. And uh, then he was indicted in federal court in 1966 for masterminding a nationwide string of bank robberies. He was convicted and in 1967 sentenced to 50 years in prison. Declan was the longest sentence for a bank robbery conspiracy case ever given up to that point. And, you know, we went through all of this. I mean, I had law enforcement around me all the time. I grew up actually hating law enforcement because, you know, I loved my dad and I saw them as, you know, the enemy harassing our family all the time. And my dad didn't want me in this life. He wanted me to go to school, be a doctor, actually. And I was was a pre-med student at Hofstra University when my dad started his 50-year sentence in 1970. And at the same time, Joe Colombo was the boss of the family. I was very close with him and his family. He kind of, you know, I started to hang out with him. He took me under his wing. I started to meet a lot of my dad's friends. You know, Mike, what are you doing going to school? If you don't help your father out, he's going to die in prison. And Declan, you know, I always say this. My father obviously, you know, was very high profile. He did a lot of bad things in his life. But that particular crime that uh, he was sentenced to 50 years on, he was innocent of. My dad was no bank robber. And he was framed in that case. And I'll take that to my grave. You know, I, I went to jail for a crime I was guilty of. I pled guilty, did my time, but uh, he was framed. So I was very motivated to try to help him get out of prison. And I visited him with Leavenworth Prison one day. And I told him, Dad, I'm not going to school anymore. If I don't help you out, you're going to die in here. We had a discussion. He was against it. But then he gave in because he knew my mind was made up. And he said, OK, son, but if you're going to be on the street... I want you on the street the right way. In his mind, the right way is to become a member of his life. So he proposed me for membership at that point in time because, you know, Declan, you can't just go up to somebody and say, hey, I'd like to join. Somebody has to propose you and vouch for you. And in my case, it was my dad. So for two or three years, I was in a recruit period where I had to prove myself worthy, uh, do anything I was told to do in that regard. And then on Halloween night here in the States, 1975, Uh, with five other gentlemen. I went into a room and took uh, a blood oath and became a sworn made member of the family. And when I came into the life, I was motivated to do two things. One, I wanted to get my dad out of prison. I did get him out after 10 years on parole. Unfortunately, he kept going back on parole violations. He went back five times. And as a result, he did 40 years on that 50. He did almost the, the whole sentence. And uh, during that time, I was fortunate. I knew how to use that light to benefit me in business. I was very aggressive. I brought some new things into the family. I got involved in a big uh, scam that I created to defraud the government out of tax on every gallon of gasoline. It's a very lucrative business we were involved in. Uh, We were selling a half a billion gallons of gas a month, taking down 30 to 40 cents a gallon. We were bringing in eight, $10 million a week. So I became a major target of law enforcement. I had, I think, 18 arrests. I was indicted seven times. I had two federal racketeering cases. I went to trial five times. I was acquitted each time on trial. Uh, and that was it. They made me a captain, a cop regime in 1980, because I was, you know, in their eyes, doing a good job for the family. And then very long story short, among many things I was doing in 84, I was uh, I was producing movies. I had a production company I met a young woman that's now my wife for 38 years, and as a result of my meeting her, I decided to try to walk away from that life. To do that, I accepted a 10-year prison sentence on this whole gas racketeering scam. I had a $15 million restitution. I had $5 million in forfeitures. I had a jet plane and a helicopter at that time. I forfeited my assets. I married this girl, and uh, I ended up doing eight years out of the 10 in prison, I had a lot of trouble when I walked away because everybody thought I was going to become an informant. That wasn't my my idea, but uh, people thought that because you don't just walk away from that life. I mean, nobody does that without cooperating and entering the witness protection program, which I never did. So, um, you know, really, that's it. And, uh, you know, I did my eight years in prison, came out and, you know, for a series of circumstances, I still can't explain. I became a, a speaker. I'm writing books and I'm doing a whole bunch of other things that they're now making a television series about my life and, and life goes on. So that's the, uh, that's the long and short of it.
0: I, I, I love to, to get in this, the the question that everybody asked, I was tweeting about, about to meet you again today. And somebody said, how did he get out of the mob? Like, how did you, I mean, you're one of the very, very, very few people in the entire universe that's got from being such a high level mobster to being safe and working on Hollywood movies. How did you get out? What was the first step that you were able to do?
1: Well, you know, people ask me that. I didn't go to Brooklyn and say, hey, guys, I'm quitting. No. Uh, had I done that, I wouldn't have walked out of the room. You know, you, you don't do that. But, you know, uh, Declan, one of the horrors of that life is that you make a mistake, your best friend walks you into a room, and you don't walk out again. And unfortunately, in my 20 years in that life, uh, you know, I've, I've experienced that. Um, but what I said is they're not going to walk me into a room. They're going to have to work to get me. So remember, I knew that life intimately. Well, I was at a high level for a long time. I basically grew up in it. And uh, so I move across country. I moved to California. I was very, very disciplined and that I changed my whole lifestyle. What did I mean by that? I didn't create patterns in my life because I know what they were going to do if they were looking for me. I didn't walk my dog every morning at seven o'clock. I didn't go to the same restaurant every Tuesday night. I stayed out of nightclubs. Bad place for me. I know who hangs out there. I'm pretty well known. Some guy sees me. They want to be a hero. They make a call to New York. I go out in the parking lot. Boom, I'm gone. So I was very disciplined in doing that. And then I kept sending messages back. I'm not going to hurt anybody. You know, you got other things to worry about because a Government was cracking down, as you know, in the 80s on everybody. You know, a lot of guys turned informant. A lot of bad things were going on. And I wasn't hurting anybody. So over a period of time, two things happened. Number one, everybody I know is either dead or in prison. And number two, they had their own troubles. They didn't worry about me. So the new guys here now, you know, they're not worried about me. I mean, don't get me wrong. I can't go back to New York and go back into the neighborhood and say, hey, guys, you know, I'm moving back into the neighborhood because I'd be thumbing my my uh, you know my face. That would there, be no, disrespectful. It would be disrespectful. So you know, and that's how that's the only way I can explain it. And of course, you know, I you know I'm a person of faith, so I think there's there's been a different purpose in my life. But um, it's the only way I can explain it. You know, and and believe me, Declan, I've had people from my former life that you know were were in there after me that are coming to me all the time. You know. How'd you do this? Can you help us out? We want to make a change. You know, it's a different a different culture here now.
0: Did you, and I, I know the answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway, because everybody asks me about you. Did you ever name, did you ever turn informant and name names inside the Colombo crime family?
1: No, what, what I did is um, I, I testified in front of the Senate about uh, organized crimes, infiltration into boxing. But, you know, what I did was very strategic, because I know these Senate hearings, they're nothing but show. Nobody gets indicted, nobody gets arrested. And the names that I mentioned, along with myself, they were already in jail doing life. So it wasn't that it was hurting anybody, and I had let my people know that I was going in front of the Senate. Whatever I did, I let people know it. And I said "None, nothing that I ever do is going to amount to anybody going to jail and my reason for that Declan I was just trying to make the government really know that I was out of the life and they knew that if I if I went in front of the senate that I couldn't go back to that life hmm. and I wanted them to leave me alone because I was so high profile you know they weren't going to let me just do eight years and get away with it I mean they still believe I have a couple hundred million dollars buried someplace so You know everything i did was strategic but always designed never to hurt anybody or put anybody in prison and i never did never did
0: let's unpack a little bit your life in the mob um we were talking off microphone just before the start of the interview i'm running a course here at the university of new haven called the code blood honor and the rules of the mafia and i'm teaching the students most of whom want to be law enforcement officials at some point in their life and saying, look, you're not able to beat transnational organized crime unless you know how they think, unless you know how they work. And there's a similarity between the Sonola drug cartel and the Yakuza and the Roza cone and the pirates of you know the Caribbean. There's a certain code that's always there. Talk us through that a little bit. What is the number one rule in La Cosa Nostra in the Colombo crime family?
1: Well, you know, there's a misunderstanding of what the oath is that we take the night that we're made. And obviously, it's called the Oath of Omerta. And Omerta means silence, meaning that you're it's, it's not an oath to lie, steal, cheat, and kill. That's not what you're agreeing to do. You're agreeing to never, ever, ever even admit the existence of Cosa Nostra. You never admit that a person is made in that life. You're supposed to have complete silence. And if that rule was kept, uh, Cosa Nostra would be a lot stronger than what happened to it, as we know, because so many guys, I mean, I violated the oath, obviously. I'm speaking about the life all the time. But, you know, those guys that became informants and went into witness protection and testified in trials, it was all breaking the oath of Omerta. And that's the number one you know, rule of that life, silence. Don't ever admit its existence. Don't ever admit anybody else is part of that life. Don't ever admit that you're part of that life. That's the number one uh, rule in that life.
0: I've got a a very close friend, Antonio Nicaso, who's the world's expert on the Nendrangata, comes from Reggio Calabria, written 30 best best-selling books. And he was telling me real power comes from Omerta because it's power that everyone knows exists. But nobody dares talk about.
1: It. Mm-hmm. That's that's exactly right. It's exactly right. And look, I I, uh, I recently you know was doing some study on on some of my uh, associates over in, in Italy, and very few of them, compared to the United States, have broken the oath. And that's why it's still pretty strong. And is very strong, you know, especially in places like Australia. You know, it's very tight knit, very strong. Yep. And also in Italy. I mean, they've done a lot of work, you know, against the mafia in Italy, but it's still very strong, and they still have a lot of control. Less less here in the United States now.
0: Well, we go back to Halloween, 1975. You're in that room with the other guys. What are your feelings as you're being initiated into this life?
1: Well, it was very exhilarating. You know, you, you got to understand, we have a very idealistic view of the life, like I said, I didn't come into the life to to murder and kill and steal. I came into the life, number one, uh, to get my father out of prison. And number two, because I thought it would benefit me business wise. Because if you know how to use that life, it could be a great benefit in business. You got to know how to use it. And, you know, it's not always by strong arming people because your presence, okay, means a lot to people. A lot of people want to be around you, you know. Um, and so I want to continue on that. But, you know, that night, I felt, you know, this is the greatest thing in my life. When I came into the life, hey, this is a brotherhood. Wherever you go in the world, you're going to have somebody that's going to have your back. Don't ever worry about your mother, your sister, your daughter, your wife. We will always have her covered. It's family. So, you know, there's nothing more powerful than that kind of bond and brotherhood among men. And I had that very idealistic view of it. And, you know, we're bound by blood. And so it meant a lot to me, but you know, in the business end of it, a lot of people think that mob guys sit in their social clubs right. and we start to think about all the businesses that we want to infiltrate. Not true. Most of the time, somebody from a business who wants to defraud their company, they come to us because hey, we can finance them. We can protect them. We'll never tell on them. They come with the scheme. That's how I got into the gas business. That's how I, I was able to defraud some major insurance companies. They all came from me. It. it comes from the inside out. So if you know how to use that without turning those people off or scaring them or extorting them, you can do well because the the, the aura of that life gives you something. Um, Michael, um, I once did an interview with
0: uh, a woman who married into the mob in, in the Hamilton, Ontario mob uh one of the branches of the Banano crime family up there and she said you know before i got before they they um i married this guy i thought it was going to be like the godfather and then i met these guys and i realized they're just a bunch of goat herders they wore nice clothes but they're just a bunch of goat herders so are most members of the mob goat herders stupid goofs if you excuse that language stupid goofs or are they men of honor
1: well, let, let me tell you this. In the Colombo family, during my time, we had 115 made right. guys. Out of the 115, 20 of us were really earnest. The other 95 were just getting by. Who's thugs? Who is holding up a store? Who is, you know, grabbing a load here and there, gambling at it, you know, stuff like that. So a bunch of them were in that category. But the 15 that we're talking about, the Joe Colombos, the Frank Costellos, Carlo Gambino, even Paul Castellano, they're on a whole different level. These were men of integrity, and they were smart. They were business-minded. They could be ruthless, don't get me wrong. But Mm -hmm. they held themselves and carried themselves in a different way. To me, and my father too in that category. My father was very charismatic, you know. You wouldn't look at him as a thug. You don't Mm -hmm. want to cross him, but you can tell there's something about him. So, listen, the mob did in America for about 100 years, we had so much control from from the guy on the street right into the White House. You don't do that by being dumb. There was a lot that we had. We controlled the unions. We had, you know, right into the White House. I had politicians on my payroll, and so did many other guys. Frank Costello, they called him the prime minister. He knew how to do it. You know, he he had people in government. He had big business. He just knew how to carry himself. So, I guess what I'm saying in the minority, you have a lot of you have guys of integrity that really built this life. Lucky Luciano, Maya Lansky, right. even though he wasn't Italian, you look, he was brilliant. Even Bugsy Siegel for a while, you know, guys. So may, that, may,
0: may, maybe not integrity in in how the street, pe- you know, how I would use the word integrity. Exactly, but exactly. Men of intelligence, men of things. Um, we, we. I want to return to the rules. So the first rule is Omerta. Oh, throw some more rules at us like what are the other rules that 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 govern this world
1: well among us you could never raise your hand to another made guy no matter what you know wrong right or anything you raise your hand to another made guy made guy you're in trouble probably cost you your life um you can never call another made guy a liar you could be sitting down at the table and you know that he's lying through his teeth in a business dispute. You can't call him a liar. If you do, you automatically lose the argument. So it's about respect in that regard. You know, um, you got to be honest in business with one another. If you caught in, cheating, Inside that
0: 115 guys of the Colombo crime family, but outside you can do what you
1: want. Outside you can do what you want, but to, to a point, you know, like I get this blowback all the time because everybody says, Michael, it's not true. During my era, we were not allowed to deal with drugs in any way, shape, or form. The night I got made, I was told straight out, you deal with drugs, you die. Now, that's not to say that some guys weren't doing it on the side, but I try to get the point across, you weren't allowed to do it. And if you were caught doing it, there are serious consequences. But guys, you know, these are street guys. They're going to earn a living here and there. They're going to do it. They're going to try to hide it from their boss, to the cop Regime. But guys were doing it, but we weren't allowed So drugs were strictly off limits during that time.
0: And and why is that? Is that because if you start taking drugs, you become a weak person or is it something else?
1: It's both. You weren't allowed to, you you weren't, if you were on drugs and you did something wrong, it was no excuse. The same way if you were drunk and you got in trouble and you did something wrong, being drunk is not an excuse. It's actually, it'll put you in more trouble because you weren't supposed to carry yourself that way, but also because it brought a lot of heat. And and that was the same. It brought a lot of heat. They said, look, we can get by, you know, doing gambling and, and numbers on the street and maybe extorting some people, but if we get into the drug business and kids get involved, and that's going to be a lot of heat and we don't want it.
0: Um again, I to return to my students here. Many of them want to be law enforcement officials. They're going to be fighting against various forms of transnational organized crime. What is the number one thing they should know?
1: Well, Know that uh, these guys are pretty sharp. You know, don't ever don't ever treat them lightly and don't ever look. Look, you know, we um, we we had so many law enforcement people that we were able to get to, especially in New York, because remember in New York and this can apply internationally. We had 750 made guys, guys that actually took the oath that comprised all five families many of us had a relative in law enforcement, had a neighbor in law enforcement, had a friend that we met. So, so we had a lot, a lot of law enforcement people that were doing our bidding. And we made it very attractive to them. I mean, there was a, there was a police station in Brooklyn that uh, two o'clock in the morning, I can go up there, open their file cabinet and see everything I want to see. And of course, he was on my payroll, I was taking care of him. So the number one thing is, watch out when they're trying to get close to you, because once they got close to you, Once we got that guy, that's it. He can never, never hurt us again because we're going to expose him in some way. So, and, you know, guys are very smart. Don't look at them as dummies and think that they don't know what they're doing. The guys that build these hundred million dollar empires on the street, whether it be drugs or anything else, these are not dumb guys. They're smart. So don't sell them short. What is,
0: I'm going to change tack here a a little bit. Um, What is life like? For the women of mobsters i mean the mothers the daughters the wives paint that picture for us
1: well look at the end of the day uh especially from the mid-80s on when here in america um when the racketeering laws really wreaked havoc and the government really declared war on on our life um it was it was hell for the family i always say the mob life is is pretty much an evil lifestyle because i don't know any family of any member of that life that hasn't been devastated, including my own. Now, not my wife and kids, because I spared them for that. But my mother, 33 years without a husband. When she passed away in 2012, Declan, I can only describe her relationship with my dad as ugly, because she blamed him for everything that went wrong. What went wrong? I had a sister, died of an overdose of drugs. Brother, drug addict, 25 years, eventually cooperated with the government and testified against my father, his own father put my dad back in jail on a violation in another case I had another sister 40 years old she wasn't right in the head she passed away early you know smoked just bad and every family I know uh of every member of that life same thing now I'm very close with I don't want to say very close but I'm I'm in close contact with Victoria Gotti John's John senior yep. yeah wife and you know what that poor woman has gone through for all of these years and it's true of every family, every wife, every child that I know in some way shape or form I have another kid, Billy Cotola I can mention his name I'll be interviewing him his father was during my era he was a captain along with me well they killed him and this kid went nuts he went crazy you know he's he he became an informant he took revenge on the guys and now he's kind of a basket case You know I try to I try to uh, counsel him as best I could but these are these are the norms they're not the uh, exception. this is what happens because it's just a, it's a it's a crazy lifestyle it's not they're normal. like the,
0: they're like the, the kind of moral punching bag they get the punches that are designed for the mobsters is it
1: exactly no you said it right exactly
0: um, you you talked about having people in the White House you talked about politicians on the payroll who is the highest guy? you had, either in the overworld, just generally, or a politician?
1: I had it, it was only me. It was it was our family Two two gentlemen in particular. One was my first copper regime, and then I got introduced to him. But he was the uh, Democratic leader of uh, New York. And he, he was extremely powerful guy. He was the guy that got me my licenses. I uh, when when I had uh, to become a wholesaler in the gas business, you needed to have licenses. Well, we really couldn't get them, but he got me 18 of them. And uh, again, on the payroll. And, you know, look, w- what do politicians want? They want votes and they want money. Two things. So on the street, with their fundraisers, we helped them as much as we possibly can. You know, we had the uh, Teamsters Union. We had the uh, Laborers Union. We had all the unions. And we we made sure that they all voted the way we told them to vote. You know, all the, all the uh, members. So... Uh, That's why they come to us. And then, of course, you know, and look, they don't hang around with every Tom, Dick and Harry. These politicians, a lot of them are smart. They know who to get close to. It's like I said, they'll get close to a Joe Colombo. They're not going to get close to a guy that's hanging out, you know, on a street corner every day. So, um, but he was, he was, uh, you know, very hooked in right into the White House. Um, Which White House? Are you talking a president
0: or are you talking one of the president's aides or one of their lawyers or somebody hanging around them?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, I never needed anything from Washington. So it wasn't that, you know, I was my relationship was with him, covered everything that I needed. But when I say right into the White House, I mean, he was a member of, uh, you know, he was one of the highest members in Congress. So he was the Democratic leader of New York. So, um you know, he can you can you give
0: Nostra. us his name now, or is this something that still has to remain hidden?
1: Well, he's gone, he's dead, but his his name was Medes Esposito. I mean, I okay. think I've mentioned him before, right?
0: Um, how is La Cosa Nostra now? Is it dead in America?
1: It's not dead. Um, I don't think you're going to see it go away in my lifetime, but it's certainly not what it was before. <laughs> you know, they've gotten smart because Declan, I'm still I'm out in California. I read the New York Post every day. During my time, New York Post, Daily News, two days didn't go by when there wasn't a story about my life. Not even two days. It was always in the news. Now, maybe every six months I see one story and it's not front page like it used to be with Gotti and all of us guys back then. You know, um, they've gone undercover. They're smart, but they're not going away. Hmm.
0: What is the most dangerous transnational organized crime group in America? Is it the Mexicans, the Sonola, the Zetas, Latin Kings, MS-13, or is it still you guys?
1: Well, I I would say, you know, the more sophisticated would be us, but, you know, dangerous, these MS-13 guys, I mean, they're they're just crazy. They have no value of human life whatsoever. Um, You know, but honestly, fortunately, I'm not that up on it now, and you don't Mm -hmm. hear a lot about it. You hear a lot of MS-13 busts, you know, they're, they're really cracking down on them, rightfully so. But I don't hear much about the Russian mob. I don't hear much about any of that. Right now, what's going on in the United States is all street crime. I don't know if you're following what's going on here. This country's going crazy. I'm telling you. You know, Declan, you can go into a, a, a store now and steal under $1,000 and walk right out the door. I mean, it's, street crime is going through the roof. In some places, it's up 200%. It's, uh, that's the real problem now.
0: Um, I wanted to to, to flip that right over because people ask me about your, um, you know, the guys now from LCN and these other organized crime groups. And I said, yeah, they're still around. But really what has happened is that some mainstream Fortune 500 companies have really started organizing themselves like organized crime. And so you see things like the opioid epidemic. You see, you know, things like that. What's your take on that?
1: You know, I I don't know if you know, but I just wrote a book, Mafia Democracy. I don't know if you've seen that. And um, Declan, I've never at no time in my life have I ever witnessed what's going on in this country. How, you know, not only in corporate America, but our government, how mob life, it's behaving. What's going on on our southern border? I mean, I spoke recently to 850 Border Patrol agents from the state of Texas. I, I was a keynote speaker at a big seminar they had. And then I spent, uh, you know, a day with them and I could not believe what they were telling me. They said, Michael, we're not even even getting 10 percent of the illicit drugs that are coming across the country. The gotaways that we talk about, the, you know, immigrants. He said, those are the ones we see. Forget the ones that we don't see. He said, there's millions of people coming over this border. We don't know if they're terrorists. We don't know if they got COVID. We don't know anything. He said, we can't control it. The federal government isn't giving us any help. And you know, it's such the biggest epidemic we got in this country now is is opioids. I mean, they're killing they a hundred thousand people last year. Yeah, it's not stopping. So, uh, you know, when, when you look at this, I mean, on a uh, on a national level, that puts us to shame. I mean, we were nothing compared to what's going on there. Um, and I can go on and on and on, but uh, yeah, no, no, I mean, I,
0: I, your point about the hundred thousand, I'm like, guys the mob has never killed 100,000 people in one year. And yet this was something that came from pharmaceutical companies that manufactured and, and marketed. It's not, it's not entirely them now, but it certainly was the initiation of that. Um, Michael, I, I really um, have been stressing from the beginning uh, to my students here at the University of New Haven, that if they want to learn the about organized crime, they've got to get out of the university, they've got to get out of talking to a bookworm like me, so if you don't mind, I'm going to bring them up here. I'm going to gather them around, and I'm going to ask them to just take over and start asking you questions, if that's okay with you. That's fine. Okay. This is Declan. Uh, look, I'm just taking a quick break to ask you, the listeners, if you're enjoying this episode, to please like, review, rate, or subscribe to the podcast. And if there's something you'd like to comment on or review, please let us know. We really want to hear from you. I also uh, would like to take a, a, a moment to thank all the students who are involved in this podcast, particularly the brilliant Ryan Decker, who is the producer. And in this next section, the students in my class ask questions directly of Francis. It was for me uh, actually the most interesting section with some extraordinary responses from the former capo to the students. Hope you enjoy it.
2: Hi, very nice to meet you. Shame so here. I, I have a question uh, so I know you were talking uh, about shows that you that are being made currently about you about uh, other things uh, within the mob and I'm just wondering what you think about television television shows that are showing the life of made men especially those that might not be giving all the credit or asking made men for advice should they be made at all what's your take on that
1: well, you're never going to stop making them because people have a fascination with uh, with crime in general. And, you know, Anna, I never realized uh, while I was in the life, I never realized how intriguing the life is to people outside of the life. I mean, I've been all over the world from Singapore to Australia to Bulgaria, you know, you name it. I've been speaking there and I'm fascinated by people's knowledge of that life, how intriguing it is. Everybody knows John Gotti. Everybody asked where Jimmy Hoffa was buried. Everybody asked all these questions. And I'm saying, how do these people even know this? So that fascination doesn't seem to be going away. I mean, I'm still a, you know, a speaker in, in pretty high demand. And it's because of my background. That's what intrigues them. That's what gets them in the door. So do I believe that they should be made? Listen, I have to be honest with you. I mean, I'm a fan of The Godfather. I think aside from everything else, it was a brilliant movie, even though it was fictional, you know, Um, you know, so they're never going to stop making them. Uh, I don't like when I see ones that are made cheesy and and there's so much misinformation in them that people take away as being factual and truthful, but you're not going to slow Hollywood down. You're not going to stop them from doing that. So. You know the the series that they're making now on my life. I told them, I said, look, authenticity means a lot to me. I understand that you take dramatic liberty at times, but it can't be so inauthentic that I can't watch it. So I'm I'm kind of safeguarding that with them, but it's going to continue. You know, you, you have to be ready for it. And if you ever want to know which ones I recommend and ones I point out, I'll let you know. All right.
0: Thank,
2: <laughs> thank you so much.
1: You're welcome. Anna
0: this is uh Angelo um Angelo is with the forensic science guys here and he's going to be doing a presentation which I think much of the University is interested in on the tattoos of organized crime and sure. how to identify those guys all Angelo, right. all right
1: very nice to meet you my pleasure so like uh Declan said I am doing uh some research on tattoos and sort of their symbolisms so I just wanted to ask is that something that you participated in in the Colombo family? Were there any tattoos or brands or sort of other symbolisms that like were important to the family? No, as a matter of fact, um, we were mainly against tattoos. Now, a lot of guys had them, but they didn't have them as part of the life. They just had them, you know, for whatever. Some were in the military, uh, some got them before they got involved. We were against tattoos. My father never had one and I didn't have one when I was in the life. Uh, because it's it's another way to identify you if you got arrested with the police. So they didn't want you. They said it was it was kind of dangerous. So we didn't have them. You know, I know other organizations like Yakuza and some of them they do have uh tattoos and they 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 have to be branded actually to be in that life. And of course the teardrop and things like that, which to me is silly because you're identifying yourself as a, a mobster or a member of a gang, you know, you don't want to do that, but you know, they have it like as a badge of honor, a badge of courage. So we were against it. I mean, I have tattoos now, but I got them after I left the life. Well, I had one when I was in prison. Some guy owed me money. I lent him money. And when you lend money in prison, you don't ever expect to get it back. So I lent him money just so he wouldn't bother me anymore because, you know, he kept coming around, but he kept wanting to pay me back, but he didn't have any money. So he said, please, I'm a tattoo artist. Let me give you a tattoo. So I got the tattoo, my wife's name and a heart, just so he would leave me alone and not tell me he had a you know, pay me back anymore. But that that was it. Now I have a couple of the tattoos. My my kids have tattoos. Everybody's tattoo crazy here in America. All right, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you,
0: Madeline. Um, Melania um, is another of my brilliant student. She's working on the Black Axe Mafia of Nigeria. Uh, Melania, hi, Michael it's Francisco.
2: lovely to meet you. Pleasure. Um, So you described that you had a two year recruitment process before you were initiated to the gang. I wanted to know how was that like and what was the experience that you went through during during that recruitment time?
1: Well, uh, I had to do anything and everything I was told to do, you know, to prove myself worthy. You couldn't question anything. It had to be done. And at times it was very menial you know, drive the boss to a meeting. Uh, I always had a nice car because I was in that business. So uh, the boss and, and the underboss would, they'd have me drive them, except that they would drive and I would sit in the back seat, but it was my car. But, you know, there was times when they would be into a, a meeting for two, three, four hours, and I had to wait for them outside in the car. And it was one time when uh, I left the car to go to the restroom and get a newspaper and they came out and I wasn't in the car. And boy, they they gave me hell. Hey, what if we had a shootout in there? We had to leave right away. We come out. You're not there. And they gave me hell. And I, I kind of paid the price for it. So there's a lot of stuff like that, you know, in that life. If you had a meeting at eight o'clock and you weren't there at 730, you were late. You can never be late. No excuses, no nothing. So, you know, little things like that. And then, of course, I want to be very honest with you. You know, we weren't choir boys. And sometimes that life is very violent. And no matter who you are, if you're part of that life, you're part of the violence. And if you're given an order to do something, you have to do it. And you got to prove yourself worthy. So, um, you know, did I enjoy that period? No, because I had to wear a suit every day, go in, sometimes just sit in a social club for three, four five hours. You know, you had to just do whatever you were told to do every weekend, go to a wedding, you know, go to a funeral. You had to be around, you had to be seen. So um it it was it was tough and it was about two and a half years for me uh, until it finally one night and they don't prepare you you know because it's a secret ceremony so they don't want anybody to know it because they don't want the law enforcement to come in and see what you're doing so just one night you know it just happened that night Uh, they said well you're not going home tonight we got something to do and that's when I got walked into that room it was late at night so that was it Thank you so much you're welcome, um, thank you for doing this Mike I really
0: appreciate this uh, this is Jelani who's doing some work on the East Coast West Coast. Uh, um, uh, murders and stuff Jelani Michael Francis hi
2: very nice to meet you. Um, I know you were talking about how like your wife and your kids were affected by the mob and everything. would you say that love is probably the mobs biggest
1: enemy. You know, it's very, very interesting. Uh, I, I, I have a different feeling on that. Do you know who Chas Palminteri is? I do
2: not, unfortunately.
1: Okay. Well, if you see the movie The Bronx Tale, he I wrote have. it, directed it. Yeah. And he played Sonny. He was the mobster. Yeah. Well, in that, he's a very good friend of mine. In that movie, um, his somebody asks him, the kid asks him, is it better to be loved or to be hated in that life? Uh, No, I'm sorry. Is it better to be loved or to be feared in that life? And he said it's better to be feared. And he gave his explanation. But I disagree with that. It's better to be loved in that life because I'll tell you why. The reason for the downfall of my former life was because you were kept in line because of fear at times that if you made a mistake or you became an informant, there would be consequences. So that did keep you in line. But what happened in America is when they started with the racketeering laws and the Bail Reform Act and the Sentencing Reform Act, the fear of the mob was transferred to the fear of the government because the government said, Hey, okay, we're going to lock you up forever. You're going to get no bail. You'll never see your family again. You're going to die in jail. But if you cooperate with us, well, you know, we'll take care of you. We'll put you in a program. We'll give you some money. So, so what happened is they became more fearful of the government. And they became informants. And a lot of guys turned in my life. But look, when you love somebody, you're not going to hurt them. So that love would be more of a a binding. But how do you get 750 guys to love each other? It's never going (laughs) to happen, you know. But there's people like, and I would never in a million years turn on my father. They could have put me away forever, you know. But if I didn't like my father and I was just afraid of him, well, hey. I'm not going to go to jail for him. So that's the difference. So, you know, love is the strongest bond that you can have to protect somebody.
2: Thank you so
0: much. You're
1: welcome.
0: Thank you. Um, the next person of my students up here is um, Jihad. Uh, Jihad is um, working his way through Ramadan. Uh, so the poor fellow hasn't eaten for 12 <laughs> hours. I'm, I'm just <laughs> counting the <laughs> minutes for him. Um, he and I are working together on a doctorate um, on police corruption. Michael Francis Jihai.
2: Hi, Michael, pleasure meeting you. Oh, uh, yes, so, Yeah, I appreciate it. So uh, just a quick question. So I, I wonder, like, what is the, how widespread police corruption between the mob, maybe I would say back in days and maybe in recent times in America?
1: Well, listen, going back to the days of Al Capone, back into the 20s, there was rampant police corruption. A lot of, you know, police officers on the payroll, um, you know, and that that persisted right through my time in that life. And it happens, you know. I'll tell you one thing, though, that I was unable to do. So it it is widespread, is what I want to tell you. Police police corruption among the the mob was very widespread. But when my dad went to prison, um, I would have paid anything. To get him out any kind of bribe. I was fortunate. I had plenty of money. I offered $2 million and I couldn't get somebody to do it. So at a high level, I couldn't get anybody to do it back then. And it wasn't easy. I mean, it wasn't you just spring him out. You know, there was still certain steps that had to be taken. So um, I guess my answer is police corruption was wide, but not so much on a very, very high level. Now, Uh, political corruption, a little bit different at times. Like I said, I had, you know, the, the democratic leader in New York, but even him, he didn't have enough weight to get my father out of prison. So it all depends, but you know, don't ever discount it. But I want to, I'm going to tell you this, and this is a little bit off subject, but I, I don't believe that law enforcement ever has the right to break the law, to catch the lawbreakers. Because if you give Law enforcement and government the authority to break their own laws anytime they want to catch somebody that they think is breaking the law. You're going to have rampant corruption, and that's when any kind of democracy is going to go out the window. They must abide by the law. And let me tell you something they have enough tools, enough weapons, they have enough law on their side to, to get the lawbreaker honestly. Give them enough time, they're going to get you and guys on the street are going to make a mistake. So um, and I hope you keep all of you that are, you know, looking to become part of government or law enforcement, uh, that you always keep that principle, because many of the straight law enforcement people that I know now said that they would never break the law to catch a lawbreaker. Either they get them honestly through all the weapons that they have in their arsenal or they're not going to get them at all. And I, I really respect that. And I hope that all of you abide by that principle if you ever take that oath.
2: Awesome. Thank you. Appreciate Thank it. You.
0: Another of my stars. Um, this is Anna Michael Francis. Anna with two ends.
2: Hello, nice to meet you. Um, my question is about your brother. Um, you talked a little bit about him, but um, as someone who followed another family member and your father into the life, um, how, how did you feel when he, you know, you know, testified against your father and you know effectively kind of sent him back to prison as well?
1: Um, it, it was devastating. I mean, I'll never forget when I found out that he went into the witness protection program. And then I had found out what we learned is that on a previous violation that my father had, it was my brother that had gotten violated. And they kept that the government kept that under wraps. So we didn't know about it until my brother testified in the trial and all this information came out. Um, it was devastating. It was like a surreal experience when I watched him up there. And I have to say this, you know. And please understand. Now I, I love my brother. We've since I didn't see him for 10 years, uh, but we've since patched it up. I kind of understand what happened to him, even though I don't sanction what he did. I don't think there was a reason to do that. Um, but I kind of understand he grew up, you know, in, in so much turmoil in our household, turned to drugs and all of that. But but even I understand, even my brother, I, I have never ever, I've been through five trials. So many of my dad's trials and so many of friends of mine during that time, I've never seen a government foreman get up on the witness stand, left hand on a Bible, right hand to tell the truth and then lie through his teeth. Even my brother, I was sitting there and I said, I I don't believe this. Some of the things that he was attributing to my dad actually happened between me and him. And to the point where I wanted to testify on my dad's behalf and his lawyer said, no. And my dad listened to him. I think my dad was afraid that I might've put myself in trouble. I don't know what he was thinking, but it's such a, when people want to save themselves, they'll go to great extent not to go to prison. Trust me on that. So you always got to be leery of informants. Unfortunately here in the United States, if the informant is lying, but still helping the government. The government's okay with that. They don't care. They're not looking for the truth. They're looking for convictions. So um, but how do I feel? You know, it, it was devastating to see my brother do that. But you know, we had a very long talk afterwards, only about two years ago, when I first reunited with him. And I said, What the heck, man? You know, what made you do that? And his explanation was something I kind of understood. He kind of had it in for my dad a little bit for some of the things that happened. He was bitter. Uh, Again, I'm not saying it was an excuse, but I kind of understand. And so, you know, but it's my brother. I love him. And, you know, I reintroduced him to my family here. Uh, My two boys kind of took it hard because, you know, they were close with him. And then all of a sudden he was out of their life and they didn't like what he did. So, and and again, it's so disruptive to family life. Every, Every facet of this is just... A mess. That's why I always counsel these young gangbangers when I go into prisons and juvenile halls. Get away from the life. It's nothing but destruction for you and the people that you love. Thank you. You're welcome.
0: Thank you, Anna. Liam Morsini, again, one of my star students, Michael Francis. Hi, Hi, Michael. Uh, thank you for coming and speaking
2: with us today. Um, I came in with a lot of questions and you actually answered a lot of them, um, but I wanted to ask. You mentioned you had associates in Italy,
0: and I was wondering how much of a relationship the family had with uh, organizations in Italy or in other parts of the globe.
1: Well, we had relationships in Italy, of course. Uh, A lot of Sicilian guys did. Uh, You probably remember the Pizza Connection case here in the United States was a big case, mostly all Sicilians involved. Very few of us were involved with that because, again, we, we were not dealing drugs. But, you know... They're two separate organizations, and the mafia in Italy does things a little bit differently than we do here in the United States. So we were we were respectful to them, we were courteous to them, but we didn't share all our secrets with them. We were told not to. Um, So again, relationships we helped one another out, but we didn't do a lot of business with one another. And that's why you see you don't see many indictments that include United States and mafia in Italy. You know you don't see that at all because we didn't work together in business that often. And and if we did, it was limited. Thank you. You are. Thank you. Um, again, one
0: of my star students, Michael, this is Sarah Middleton, who speaks fluent Russian and yeah. is working on a presentation on borders Russian Mafia. Sarah, Michael Francis.
2: Hi, nice to meet nice. you. Pleasure. Um, so I was hoping you could talk a little bit more about the brotherhood between members and When you left did it feel like you were walking away from your family essentially
1: you know i'll tell you what happened when i left um it was excruciating because yes i felt like i was betraying my oath betraying my my friends you know uh, and and it became very significant to me because in 1991 our family was going to war the colombo family we had a warring family we always had a lot of stuff going on and i had walked away and it became public but my dad had gotten out on parole again and he called me i was out in california he was in new york and he said michael you got to stop what you're doing and get back to new york the family's going to war and there were two factions vicarina was on one side and persico who was my boss on the other side and he i had a big crew and he said you got to get back here and get your people together we're going to war serious and i had such i was on parole i had such a tremendous pull on me i couldn't sleep i felt like how could i betray my guys i I felt like a coward how could i not go back there and I, i would go to sleep at night not going back wake up in the morning going back so i was actually trying to figure out how to get away from where i was i was going to break my parole and go back And what happens? I walk out of a bank, and there's 15 agents waiting for me. They violated me on my parole. And I went back to prison for three years, and it was those three years that the war went on. And during that time, 13 of my uh, former associates were killed. Uh, 63 went to jail, and 18 became informants. And I was in jail, and they kept me in lockdown during that time. I was in solitary. But uh, the point is, It was during that time that I got over it, but I felt horrible for years because, you know, that oath really means something. I mean, this was when you're in that life, you got to be in it all the way, body, mind and soul. You don't survive. It becomes part of you, becomes part of your thinking. Your whole way of life is, is different. So and then I felt like I was betraying my dad, you know, who I loved. So it, it was very, very difficult. And if it wasn't for my wife and my faith and, um, you know, this transformation that took time, you know, for me mentally and emotionally to go under, I, I don't know if I would have dealt with it that well. But, um, you know, fortunately, I'm over it now. But it took a while. It took a while. And I, I will tell you this, though, if you're studying the Russian mob, I had three Russian partners. And, you know, the Russian mob, they weren't as organized as we were the guy that was extended himself power wise and had the most money, he was kind of the boss. And I had three Russian uh, partners in the gas business. They were the best partners I ever had on the street. The best. We made a ton of money together. We were together for seven or eight years and we got along extremely well, you know, both as uh, business partners and as friends. And unfortunately I'll just tell you this when I left, and I told them, I met with the three of them, Markowitz, Bogatin, and, and Persitz were their names, uh, the last names. And I said, Look, let me tell you how this works. You're gonna have to answer to somebody else now. They're gonna be your partner, somebody in my crew, you know. And they said, No, Mr. Michael, we only we only work with you. I said, It doesn't go that way. You're gonna have to do it, you know. We won't do it. Well, they wouldn't. And one of them got killed. One of them they went after and uh, they put him in a wheelchair. They shot him a few times, he lived. And uh, Bogatin, who was probably the best, he, f- he fled the country. He actually ended up in Poland. And then uh, the United States extradited him from Poland to the United States. He was the first um, person extradited from Poland to the US since 1929. And he went and uh, served time there. But you know what? Now, he kept his mouth shut. He never fingered me. Neither did Persitz. Bogarton, uh, I mean, Marquis didn't have a chance because they killed him, uh, but they were great partners. If if nothing ever happened to me, we would have, we, we used to tease, we, we would own all of New York.
2: <laughs>
1: but uh, anyway, I, I'm just reminiscing. Those are those are the good old days. Bad, good old bad days, I should say. <laughs>
2: so. well, thank you.
1: Okay. Thank you, Sarah. Michael.
0: Thank you for sharing this. One last question from here. Yeah. Emily is is another star student. She's a fresh freshman here. Um, I'm very impressed with her in her first year here. So, Emily, uh, Michael Francis. Okay. Hi. Hi, Emily. Uh, do you think it's possible
2: to ever truly stop an organized crime group, or will the group just keep existing in some form or another?
1: You know, I don't think it's. I don't think you're ever going to stop it here. What happens here in the United States is like what happened in the '80s for a period of time, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years, the government will be organized crime, organized crime, organized crime. When I was in that life, they had 1200 FBI agents assigned to all five families, 1200 agents, 750 made guys, right? Um, now there are less than a hundred agents on all five families. Why? Because they move them to terrorism. Something else happens and they take it off organized crime and terrorism. But during that time, guys on the street start to build up again. So from what I'm hearing, their presence is is still pretty solid because the government isn't watching them like they did at one time before. So do I think it'll ever go away? No, I don't think so, because because of the very reason that I said and guys on the street, they're always going to be guys on the street. They're not going anywhere else. Thank you. You're welcome.
0: Emily, thank you very much. Julian. Michael thank you so much uh, for sharing your time with these guys I, and I'm really happy because some of those stories some of that information and education I I've never heard you and you and I have spoken a number of times like that I'm just gonna I'm a no I'm a little over time I just wanted to ask my friend and colleague Bobby McDonald do you have a question for Michael frenzies I do not uh Tom Mangine or Erica or Ruby You guys are six hours away from us. Uh, Any questions? You're up, I guess, almost to midnight. Ruby, I know you were gonna have a question because you're in the Philippines and stuff. I just wanted to check with Erica and Tom. Are you guys
2: okay? I'll let Ruby speak first. I do have a question for Mr. Okay, Ruby Ann, please. Hi, Tom. Yeah, I'm in the EU right now. So my question is how deeply involved is organized crime in sport?
1: In sports? Well, as Declan knows, at one time we had, uh, you know, significant involvement as far as the gambling end of it, where we had a lot of athletes and uh, league personnel gambling with us, both on a professional and a college level. Um, I don't think it's as rampant today um, because there's so many other ways for athletes to gamble now, specifically online. You know, the irony in all of this, we tried so hard to keep gambling out of professional and collegiate sports, and now they're actually bringing it in, you know, uh, the sports organizations are bringing it in. You know, Declan, I just, uh, today, actually, I dropped a uh, video with Kevin Hallinan, who's oh, yeah. the head of security. Yeah. yeah, it just dropped today. I interviewed him the other day, just went on this morning at 11 o'clock. Uh, so not as much today, uh, although the, you know, we still have bookmakers on the street, um, and there's still athletes, from what I hear, gambling. But it's not like it was before.
2: Okay,
0: thank you. Okay. Salamat, um, Tom. Sir, I'm not sure. I'm not sure where
2: you are. I knew you were in Ukraine a couple of weeks ago. Um, yeah, but so I'm I'm back on on the other side of the border. I'm in Krakow. So okay, I say good afternoon to you, sir. This is the second time I've heard you speak, and I really appreciate your frankness. Um, in the in all honesty, my father was an immigrant from Naples. My mother was an immigrant from Ireland. I grew up probably 40 miles south of you in northern New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Um, and my background is military, special operations intelligence. And, uh, and I'm back consulting with different governments. I, you've been incredibly forthcoming talking about some of the emotional impact on you. I wanted to say from your personal perspective, what was one of the most sobering things that you and your colleagues would encounter? You've talked it at great length about When you're brought into the lifestyle, there is the feeling of camaraderie, commitment, and fealty to your brothers in the organization. And that moment where you have that sobering thought that this is not what I thought, my impression is for you is seeing the impact of this demanding lifestyle on a family member who's partly associated with it. For you, it's your mother. Hang on, Tom, where's the question? So the question is, what is the most sobering impact that forces somebody to reconsider their
1: commitment to the organization? Well, you know, Tom, I I understand where you're going. There's some defining moments that we have in our life, you know, and when you look back, I think, you know, moments that really had an impact on you that caused you maybe to make a change or to really think. And it was a couple of things. Number one, you know, I had a feeling of betrayal when the FBI told me that they came into the prison to tell me that my boss, Persico, had put a contract out on my life and that my father went along with it. Now, that was sobering because I tried to process what my dad would have really done. And my dad being such a stalwart in that life, I know he wouldn't have put a gun to my head, but he just said, okay, if my son is doing the wrong thing, the life comes first. That hurt. There was another time, there was two betrayals I I received from my dad that were very sobering. And then another time after I had taken my plea, um, they were transporting me, I was in custody and all the agents that had investigated me were transporting me to Florida to take a plea in a Florida case also, right? And on the plane, it was very funny. They were all asking me, Michael, now that the investigation is over and you have taken a plea, uh, let me ask you this. When we were watching you here, did this really happen? They were asking me about their investigation. And I was teasing them. I said, you know what? The only reason I took a plea is because I beat you five times. I got tired of beating you. I just figured I'd give you a win, right? And one of the agents looked at me, I'll never forget, and he looked me straight in the eye and he said, not this time, Michael. You became a superstar and they were lining up your friends to put you in prison to save themselves. And he looked at me dead serious. And you know what? It struck me. It really hit me. And I said, you know what? He's right. He's right. And that was very sobering because after these incidents with my dad and then hearing that, I'm saying, who do we trust in this life? Who do we trust? And I'm not making myself out to be an angel. Don't get me wrong, but these are the things that that hit me, and I said, "This is not the life that I expected it to be," and and it was it, it played heavy on my decision to walk away. But okay. you know, doing wow. it, Tom, it was a dance to do this without putting in people in prison, and then trying to make the government believe I was a good guy. Now it was a dance that I eventually lost because. You know they violated my parole when I refused to testify against the boss of Jersey, John Riggi. I'm sure you know that name. Um, but at the end, I won. In the end, I won because I'm alive and free, and I, I have a life. That is incredibly. So, that answer.
2: I, I no, it's it's incredibly insightful, and I appreciate you giving me extra time to the intro into that question. So thanks so much, Declan, and sir, thanks so much for your time. Tom, you thank it. you, and yeah.
0: stay safe. I don't want to ask what you're doing over there, but just stay safe for the rest of us, okay, brother? It's seemed
2: um, for me that it was for this gentleman. I can say that with, and he's managed to live.
0: Michael, um, thank you so much. A mafia democracy. Yes. Uh, from the Godfather to God the Father. Yes. Any of your other work that I should be uh, should be mentioning here, because they're both brilliant.
1: I really, you know, I wrote a business book on making an offer you can't refuse. I think, I think, for students, these books would be very helpful to give them some insight, you know, to see another perspective. Um, I was, you know, mafia democracy. Uh, can I tell you brief, briefly? You know, seven years ago, after I wrote, I'll make you an offer you can't refuse. My publisher wanted me to do. I had a, I had an obligation to provide them another book, and they say we want you to do a political book. Do you have something in mind? I said, yeah. And it was this mafia democracy. And I went home and I wrote four chapters and I stopped writing and I went to my wife and I say, why am I doing this? I'm exposing the government. People are going to be upset with me. I don't have anybody coming after me right now. I changed my mind. I went back to HarperCollins and I gave them back my advance. They gave me a big advance. And I said, I'm not writing the book. Cut to a year and a half ago. From what I see going on in this country, I said, I have an obligation to write this book because people have to be aware, and they have to hold our public officials accountable. That's the only reason I wrote the book. And it's right down the middle. I mean, it's it's this is a a, a bipartisan book. It's not a partisan book. But I need people to be aware. And young students, I, I would love for them to read it and come to their own conclusions, because a lot of research and everything is factual. And the satisfaction I've gotten is that so many of the comments are, Michael, now we get it. Now we see it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. They've been 99% positive after reading the book. So I encourage them to read it just for that at all so they can widen their perspective and then, of course, make their own conclusions. I have no uh, no doubt that the young people today, they're they're bright and they make their own conclusions, but they need all the information in order to do that. So that's it.
0: Michael, thank you. Matthew Good DeMarcus, you. I'll make sure it's on. I really, this has been a fantastic educational experience for this guys. Guys, can we give this man a round of applause? Thank you, Declan.
1: And Declan, you you, you keep up the good work. You're one of the guys out there that are providing the right information. So thank you. Anytime you need me, you know I'm here. Awesome. Thank you, Michael. I'll see you soon, I hope. Take care. Yes. Bye-bye.
2: And to you,
0: our listeners and supporters of Crime Waves podcast, thank you for tuning in. We deeply appreciate all your comments, reviews, ratings, and subscriptions. Please keep them coming in. We'll see you next week for another episode of Crime Waves. We're going to be interviewing former police officer and now professor with me here at the University of New Haven, Lisa Daddio. It's on how she and her team helped crack the case of a vicious series of sexual assaults. We call the episode
1: Solving the Unsolvable.